This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today my guest is Aubrey Thompson of Rebrand Skincare. Hey, Aubrey, how's it going? Hey, Steve, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Let's start by just tell us who you are, what Rebrand is, and how give us the origin story of how Rebrand came to be. So my name is Aubrey Thompson. I am a cosmetic chemist, and I started my career as a chemist at a beauty brand. Um, So that was something that I really loved because I could tie this technical skill with still some of a marketing aspect where I can think about what consumers want, what they're interested in, um, and kind of merge those two things together. What happened separately in my personal life is that I started to reduce my waist and think a lot more about sustainability, became vegetarian, started composting, and realized that my beauty routine was a big contributor to my single-use plastic usage. Even products that were made with incredible ingredients were still coming in single-use plastic packaging. So with that in mind, I came up with the idea to formulate great products and put them in packaging that would be more sustainable. At first, I didn't know what that looked like, but through a lot of user research, I decided to go with a refill system, and that is how I created Rebrand Skincare. So we now offer five products, all of them with refill options, either online or in person at local refill shops. I'm curious, well, a couple of things here that I want to ask about. One is, I had no idea there was such a thing. It makes perfect sense, of course, but I had no idea there was such a thing as a cosmetic chemist before I encountered, you know, you and your company, I'm like, that's even a thing. How does one decide to pursue study or to get into that area as far as chemistry goes? Yeah, it's a very niche field. And I'm so glad I stumbled upon it because it's a very cool intersection of interests. But essentially, I studied chemistry in college. I just loved the field of chemistry ever since high school and the way things work together and predicting reactions. But I didn't want to spend my whole life just in a lab and especially thinking about pharmaceuticals and energy or oil, which is what the vast majority of chemists go into. I really didn't want to pursue either of those things. And fortunately, my senior year of college, I had an internship at a beauty company. And that was really my first exposure to this idea of being a chemist behind consumer products. So I, at that point, was interested in cosmetic chemistry and food science. Also, household cleaners have chemists behind them as well. So all of those things interested me. And I ended up pursuing the beauty industry specifically, which has been such a fun journey. And as far as the the piece of the, the, the packaging, as soon as you start thinking about it, it makes sense because you see so many, really, I mean, any kind of skincare products all seem to be very, inevitably, some kind of packaging that's like, this, this is clearly not going to be recyclable or going to be difficult to recycle. But then there's multiple layers of it too. There's like, okay, so you've got this container that is clearly not going to be recyclable or not easy to recycle. And then it's in this box that is covered in like glossy, shiny, whatever fancy stuff. And that's obviously not recyclable. And all and all of this, how much waste is the beauty and skincare industry producing on an annual basis? Yeah. So the statistic that gets cited a lot is 120 billion units of cosmetic packaging produced each year, which is mind-blowing. And that amount, I'm not exactly sure how much is going to be recycled, but we know that the overall recycling rate for plastics is about 9% in the United States. So if you think about that and multiply by 120 billion, you're looking at a lot of waste going to landfill. Wow, that's crazy. Now, is is this something at an industry level that there's much concern about or much attention being given to? I do think that companies are starting to realize that it would be profitable to care about these things, which is honestly a good thing. And with consumers being more interested and asking more questions, I have seen some very cool strides from bigger companies who are looking to address the packaging problem in a way that makes sense for them. It may not always be the way that's going to have the biggest impact, but I am happy to see conversations happening around that. So tell us about your products and your packaging. 
one, where, where those things stand now as far as what they are, but also how you have over time designed, developed, and evolved those. So this is one of my favorite topics to get into. But when I set out with this idea of I want to do better on the packaging front, there were many options that I could take. And so I was able to do a lot of research and kind of come to the conclusion of where we are now. So the first question I had to ask was about the format of the product itself, because there were a lot of products in the zero waste space that were solids or powders. And those types of things are easier to package in paper because you don't need a barrier that's going to prevent leakage. Unfortunately, from interviewing customers, I found that that was really not desirable or something that they were going to be making the switch to. They really preferred their liquid format products, cleansers, serums, moisturizers. Um, And so that was pretty clear to me that in order to actually meet the customer need and make the difference I wanted to make, it was going to need to be a liquid product. So then my next option was, okay, what what material am I going to use? And in looking into materials, you find that all of them have trade-offs. I do think that glass and aluminum have a better end of life in that they can be infinitely recycled, but there's plenty of energy being (laughs) consumed along the way in the production of those materials. And it really led me to the belief that a refill system and engaging in reuse systems is the way forward. So using a material like glass that is durable to refill into and try to keep that packaging in use for as long as possible became kind of the clear way forward. So what it looks like now is you will purchase an initial unit that comes in glass packaging. It will have either a dropper or a cap as the closure. And then you will keep that bottle and you can choose one of two options to refill. The first option is to refill at home. So you can order a 2x refill on our website. It comes in aluminum and you would fill back into your initial packaging. Or you can visit a local refill shop where they stock our product in bulk and you can refill from a larger container there. So this is a very fun system to see how it works and to really see if it is being used. And that's something that I care about a lot is that people are engaging with the system. And one of the statistics that I've looked at is of my returning customers to my website, how many of them are repurchasing the same glass unit versus engaging in the refill system and purchasing the 2x refill? And we have actually over 90% of returning customers purchasing the 2X refill. So that was incredibly encouraging for me that this actually seemed doable for people, that it was still within the confines of their normal routines. Unlike some other attempts at refill systems that I've seen, such as send-back programs, where the engagement rate is typically very low because the barrier for a customer to send-back packaging is extremely high. So with the 2X refills, what prompted the decision to use aluminum instead of glass for those? Is that a cost, recyclability kind of other variable there or what? Yes. So aluminum is the most highly recycled material in the U.S. It has a recycling rate of 54% in the U.S. It could be much higher than that if we wanted it to be, but it's still pretty impressive. So that material in my mind is the best from a recyclability perspective. So that's why we chose it for the 2X refill. It's also lighter weight than glass. So shipping emissions are decreased by using that as a 2X refill. So some people also ask, then why don't you just put the initial in aluminum as well? And that's a fair question. From my perspective, as someone who had worked in the beauty industry, I really did still want to emphasize an aesthetic component and a shelf presence component. And the glass does still have that infinite recyclability while providing more of an elevated look on shelf that's going to allow more people to be introduced to the brand, which at the end of the day is going to make a bigger impact. It sounds like you've tried to find a balance of, sure, I want to make sure I make a product that's as sustainable, as environmentally friendly as possible. And at the same time, I'm going to see where I can at least take some action to maintain um, a good aesthetic presence to be able to have it be something that still has a visual appeal and all that. And I've certainly, I've seen your products, I've seen what they look like, and they just have a very nice, it's a very clean and basic look, but in a way that, that again, is good. It's not a thing where you would look and be like, oh, 
those are those are sustainable products. You can tell, <laughs> you know, they they don't have that that kind of a look at all at all to them. They're just they're just more of a, a basic aesthetic to them. Is that like the from the a design standpoint? Is that something that you've done? Something you've brought in other people to help with, or how has that evolved? So thank you for pointing that out. And I think that's very true and something that was always important to me because I didn't want to just be a granola type product. There's a lot of great products that look that way and there are the right customers for those. But in my mind, my target customer and a bigger customer base really to make a bigger impact is someone who's already interested in clean beauty. So they care about ingredients already. And now maybe they're interested in taking it one step further from the packaging. So from that standpoint, yes, the product needs to be in the right format of a liquid and it needs to look good on a shelf next to other beauty type products. So that was very key for me from the beginning. And to start, I did do a lot of the design work. I had a small background in some graphic design and just really liked the minimal look. And I think it will serve us well throughout. And since then, we've been able to have people help out with photography, especially we have an amazing photographer that we work with just to kind of bring that like clean aesthetic to the photos as well. For you, as far as where your products are sold at this point, are you besides the refill piece, which I totally want to get into because that's a, that's a whole thing in and of itself and very, very cool. But before we go there, are there like, are, are your products available in retail locations in their actual original packaging, just online combination, or how is, you know, how does, how is that work and how has that developed for you? Yeah. So then we do work with refill shops. So those are our main avenue for in-person retail. We don't work with any major retailers at this point because we emphasize so much this refill aspect. And it is cool to see that implemented from a local level and with shops that are really prioritizing reducing waste. How it works is you can purchase our the individual units both online on our website or at some of these refill shops. And actually, if you go to our website under the refills tab, you can click find a refill shop and that will help you locate one near you. It'll also tell you if they sell individual units and bulk or just one or the other. So that way you can then once you purchase your individual unit, go to these refill shops to refill. We just absolutely love working with these shops because the people who run them have the same values. They want to see this as kind of the the new way of doing our shopping is doing it in this manner. So it's very cool. So for people who aren't familiar with these, like give give us some more background on, on how they work. Because I think also a lot of people probably assume, like I had at first, that like they just carry their own stuff. Right. It's just kind of like they have their own line of stuff and yeah, you can go there and you can refill it there. And that's cool. It's like, okay, that's fine or whatever. But clearly it's not quite that simple and there's other other elements to it. So so give us a little bit of a refill store 101, if you would. So what refill shops are is essentially a community or neighborhood store where you can go to buy product in bulk. And sometimes they'll have grocery items, but a lot of times it will be cleaning products and home products, laundry detergent, as well as some personal care products and now skincare. So a lot of times these will be produced by other brands like Rebrand Skincare and the refill shops will simply buy the big, large containers in bulk. You can come to the store and typically you'll bring your own empty and clean containers that you want to fill up with different products. If you don't have them already, that's okay. They typically have containers you can purchase there as well. And how it works is they will weigh your empty container and then you can fill it with whatever you want in the store and they will typically charge you by weight of the product that you buy. So you're not paying for packaging, which is awesome. So you can typically save a little money and you're not creating any waste by shopping there. Cool. So how have you like built relationships with these different places and, and how many refill shops do you have your products in at this point? So we just hit 25 refill shops, which was really exciting. And a lot of them are in the Bay Area because that's where we are here in San Jose. But actually, it was fun to see this evolve because when I first started the brand, it was purely e-commerce and we had the individual units and the 2x refills. And I approached a store that had recently opened in Oakland and they were a sustainable store. And I just thought I'd see if they wanted to buy the individual units because they were in glass packaging. 
And they said, yeah, that'd be great. Let's see how it does. And after selling through what I had initially sold them, they asked, would you be able to sell this to us in bulk? Could you put it in a half gallon container? And I, like, at that point had no other retailers. I was like, sure, I'll do whatever you want me to do. (laughs) And it ended up working out so well that I then was able to approach other refill shops and saw that as as a huge pull for these refill shops because they had already found brands that would do things in glass packaging, but there weren't very many that were willing to put bulk out on the shelves. It's it's kind of a whole nother skew if we're talking like from a business perspective, adding another bulk skew for an established brand is very difficult. But I was so small and so nimble that it just became automatic and has become a very core part of the business. So so is it most mostly in the Bay Area are your other ones elsewhere in California? Have you gotten outside of California yet or like where yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. So we do have some Throughout the U.S. too, we have some Texas, Colorado, Michigan, Pennsylvania. So they're very random. I've really focused a lot of outreach on California, but I love working with all shops. So if anybody hears this and wants to work with us, please reach out and I can send you more information. So how do you go about like finding them? Is this just a, you're, you're there like Googling and like, I'm going to go target Pennsylvania and see who's there or <laughs> how, how have you, have you gone about doing that? So most of my outreach has been to California shops, and I've been pretty tapped into that because of just living here and having this community of people that are interested in refills. And then most of my out-of-state shops were inbound. So they they found me through social media, which was amazing. I think that might be how you found me as well, Steve. <laughs> so it's cool to see those connections being formed. Anything international at this point? Not yet, no. I I don't know if that's going to be in the cards, especially because I think the idea of emphasizing local is really cool. So I'd love to see other brands internationally look into refills and that type of thing, but I'm not sure if it'll be our brand that is doing that internationally. Besides the packaging piece, what would you say from the standpoint of the the content and the materials, what differentiates your products from other skincare products? So yes, so our formulas are under the clean beauty umbrella. So we adhere to the Credo Clean Beauty Standard, C-R-E-D-O. And this is the biggest clean beauty retailer who has a set of ingredients that their toxicologist has deemed either should be in products, shouldn't, or what use levels they should be at. That's very important from a human health standpoint. I think that fortunately, a lot of brands are coming into compliance with those things. Where I think we're riding the differentiation factor is the combination of the sustainable packaging and the great ingredients. So the formulas are using ingredients like vitamin C and hyaluronic acid that are really great active ingredients they have great sustainability behind them, but they're they're actually efficacious. Unlike some of the more zero-waste type products that don't have these ingredients that a lot of skincare shoppers are looking for. So it's really the fact that we can do both together that makes it very unique. So right now you were saying you have five different products, correct? Yes. Do you have plans for trying to evolve that line into a larger number of products? Or are you pretty comfortable with that? Or what's your what's your plan there? Yeah, I think tying into our overall sustainability mindset, I definitely pumped the brakes on creating tons of new products at once. Um, so it's very intentional. And at this point, I'm kind of feeling out what these refill shops are looking for. What are customers coming in and asking for? And that kind of informs where I think there might be a gap. So I can definitely see expanding the line by maybe at most probably five more products, but probably at most one a year, maybe one every two years. It's also cost constrained as a bootstrapped business to add a new product can can be a big burden. So excited to see where it goes, but not on a major trajectory of adding a lot of new products. Well, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, and maybe you you have some thoughts on this, but like, I see some of these brands, and I'm like, why do you have 13 different kinds of sunscreen? I can't tell the difference. It feels it feels excessive, but even more, 
with some of the things that are more skincare oriented, right? There's like your day moisturizer and your night moisturizer and your all this and all that. And it's like, I'm sitting there going, what's the difference? I can't right. tell. And it starts to feel like, and I don't know if it is, it starts to feel like this thing of they're just trying to get you to buy more things. Yes, I would agree with that. Especially in terms of what products are actually necessary for skin health. You're really only looking at a cleanser, a moisturizer, and a sunscreen. Anything else on top of that maybe is going to provide an extra benefit, but it is not improving your skin health. And that's something that I think some of the bigger brands have gotten away from just in chasing trends and in wanting to collect whatever amount of revenue they can. And just being focused on that rather than really focused on what what do people actually need? Is that something that you have used or using in your marketing or positioning? I'm just curious from like a branding, you know, marketing standpoint and really taken on as, as a, as a bit of a mission on your, cause it seems like that's a the thing there. You could really make that argument of like, Hey, look, you only need three things y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. In fact, it was a b- major push for us, especially in March for women's history month. And just thinking about the messages that women especially receive from beauty industry marketing. And it's typically, there's an underlying current of there's a problem you have that we're pointing out to you that our product will fix. And not only is that degrading for mental health reasons, but it's also part of the reason we have such an issue with overconsumption. So it really is sustainable to call out the lies that the beauty industry feeds us. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see the intersection of those two things. How do you find the balance of getting people to not overconsume but still producing for you and operating in a way that leads to a sustainable business. That it feels to me like something that might be a challenging tightrope to walk. I don't know. Yes, that's a great observation. And there's definitely tension there. And I think it is an interesting space to work in, right? We definitely need to slow down as a society in terms of how much we buy. But there are products that really do make our lives better. And we're not going to stop buying things entirely, right? So part of my approach has been creating really high quality products and again, fewer products. From the beginning, my baseline has been with this level of kind of non-marketing, if you will. I think what is harder for bigger brands is once you've already gotten on this path of expecting a certain amount of revenue based on all the emails and all the Google ads and all the Instagram ads that you've paid for, stockholders aren't going to be okay with you kind of reining that in. But as someone who's not really invested much in marketing from the beginning and became profitable within six months, I feel that my baseline is kind of where I want it to be in terms of it doesn't rely on a ton of uh, marketing or pressuring consumers to buy now. That doesn't mean that we don't have sales and we don't do any marketing. We do have one sale a year and it's a month long and we tell everybody about it for the entire month. And that just feels like a way to still offer people deals in November when they're looking for them, but also give them plenty of time to think about it and not feel like flash sale. You only have 24 hours. So it's just kind of those things of taking the traditional marketing tactics and thinking how they can be done to benefit both the consumer and us and not harm the environment. And you, as you will point out, you have some advantages um, because of how you've operated as a, as, you know, as a company as far as what's expected of you or not expected of you versus or really more what's expected of some of these bigger ones. How much has your thoughts about how to design your business, about how to structure that have been oriented around the idea of how do I how do I create something that is sustainable, profitable, and that I feel good about, that I feel is a, you know, is an ethical entity out there? Yes, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that has been really helpful for me in that is being independent of outside investment for now. I don't know if we'll be able to operate that way forever, but at this point, it's been really great to have control over the way things are set up because I don't have to only focus on profit. While I definitely care about that, I can stay true to values that I think could potentially get a little watery as there are other people to answer to. 
typically also with venture capital investment, you're they're looking for a seven to 10 year exit. And that's just not the timeline that I'm working on. I would love to be doing this for the rest of my life. And so that takes some of the urgency out of it and allows for something that to me feels more sustainable. It's not a breakneck pace. We're not just trying to outgrow as fast as we can, but really trying to to build something that will be around for years to come. So along those lines, how many employees, partners, how, like how many people are, I guess, involved or connected to the, the process of, of creating, selling, marketing, managing, and, and all of that? Like how big is Rebrand from that standpoint? Our biggest partner is our manufacturer, who is also here in the Bay Area in in Hayward. And that has been awesome. They have been a huge help in being able to achieve some of the scale that we have. Initially, I was producing product in my lab, which was very limited in terms of how much I could produce at a time. So that's a big partner for us. And then we have several consultants working in the marketing side of things from social media to photography. But in terms of full-time employees, it is just me. So yeah, so this is a thing where to point out to folks who wonder about this to see, you know, what kind of things can you do is just you. It's like with the right partnerships and the right structure and the right thinking about it. Well, here's an example, right? We've got somebody who has a national skincare product company and it's her and some partners that she works with, which is, you know, which is, is, is really impressive. Now for you, what would you say, like both sides of this, what have you found positive or advantageous about operating in that, that small sort of way? And what are things maybe you found challenging or difficult about it? So I personally have really enjoyed working in this way, although the temptation to be able to tell people, oh, I have 10 employees, there's definitely a kind of prestige that comes with having employees that I think, you know, it's nice in conversation, but in practice, I think I've been able to have a lot more flexibility because I I'm not on anybody else's timeline. I'm able to take time if I need it to spend with family or just go on vacation. I also feel like in starting a business, part of the reason I wanted to start it was because of the life that I wanted to have big picture. I I wanted to be able to have a family and have time to be there at home and doing those types of things. And so whenever I come to a crossroads of like, should I grow faster or take on more obligations or partners? The question is kind of like, well, what will it make my life look like? And if that's if that wasn't in line with why I started it, then it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And one of the best books I've read that kind of deals with this topic is called Company of One by Paul Jarvis. So that kind of philosophy was Something that had been in the back of my mind in all of this, but it was great to see it kind of written down and in practice. Yeah, I think that for anybody who's thinking about this sort of structure for a business, Company of One is is definitely a good read. I'll put that uh, link to that in the show notes. Another book that is related that's pretty interesting, and if you haven't read this, you might check it out, is it's called The Million Dollar One Person Business um, by Elaine Pofelt. And it's, it's another one that shows just a lot of good case studies and interesting things. And it really shows in this day and age what's possible for someone who wants to, again, stay small, but do, but do some pretty big things. Yeah. Well, so I, I hear you saying, you know, you're really visioning this as this is a company, this is a project that you see as really a full career adventure for you, yeah. at least ideally. So, so tell me more, like in, in that whole picture, like in that whole vision of what you want for rebrand and like imagine let's let's jump forward to that day when you're finally like okay i'm gonna retire or you know hand <laughs> off to my kids or do whatever 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 when you're finally like okay i'm done um, <laughs> what's what's your like ultimate vision or dream for what you would like to see rebrand be and become I definitely think that the idea of the local refill shop is something that I'm invested in and would love to see that flourish and be a big supporter of those shops because running those shops is not easy. And a lot of times they're doing a lot of the grunt work for me in the sense of they're paying rent for a storefront and they're the ones actually interacting with the customers. So I'd really like to support the growth of refill shops. And we are seeing more and more of them open. 
and around the country. So that's really exciting. I'd also like to think about ways that refillables could become more mainstream and think about partnerships and maybe potentially larger retailers who would be willing to think about refill systems within their stores, as well as continuing with the online business, which I think will be a a great access point for people who don't have a local refill shop or retailer. To flip things onto the other side a little bit, tell me about like what are some of the challenges that you have faced along the way and overcome on this on this journey to get to where you are now? I love this question because there are always trade-offs with sustainability and business, but sometimes they actually work really well together and the more sustainable thing is actually the thing that makes more sense from a business perspective as well. I think one of the things that I've touched on as a challenge is the logistics and skew management for refill for refill systems in general. So for every new product that we launch, it really is three SKUs because we have the individual, the 2X refill and the bulk. And so that is another reason why we don't offer, you know, 20 plus products. But because it was built in from the beginning, it luckily is kind of ingrained in our inventory tracking and our planning. So that's been really cool. Another challenge is what to do with some of the packaging at the end of its life. We like to offer a full cycle circular economy approach. So we actually do take empty bottles from the refill shops back. But as you can imagine, that adds another layer of logistics. So we are now washing and sanitizing empty bottles that get sent back and tracking them through getting filled with product again. So that is very logistically challenging, but it's been something that has been communicated to us of utmost importance from the refill shops so that they can tell their customers that they're also sending back their packaging to be refilled. So these are, I would say most of the challenges in the refill business are from a logistics perspective. That's really cool that there's this one, the, the, the demand for, hey, we want to make sure that this is what's happening here and that you're, you're supporting that. So it seems like there is sometimes a, a bit of a trade-off for you on the like, or not a trade-off, but the, the challenge of, okay, how much logistical challenge do we take on to uh, really support trying to be aligned with our values and um, our mission and what we're trying to do here? Are there cases like opportunities or things people have asked for where you have had to or chosen to say no because some aspect of it didn't make sense or didn't work? Yes, actually, that's a that's a good question too on the flip side. So I can actually think of two examples right off the bat. One is our shipping boxes. We would love to be able to just reuse boxes that we receive from other shipments, from ingredients. However, we have experienced breakage when we use a box that has maybe been used a few times and is a little flimsy. So we had to make the decision to purchase our set sizes of very thick cardboard boxes. And those are made of 100% recycled paper. But I know there, there are shops that would love me to only just use packaging that I already have. Another one is unit cartons. So you talked about multiple layers of packaging. And when we started, we actually just had the glass bottle as the initial unit and it didn't have a paper carton around it. That worked really well for e-commerce because you're just usually packing one or two products at a time. When we started shipping to retailers, though, the amount of time and paper it took to wrap each one and then try to fit it into a box and it not fitting tightly and shipping well led us to decide to use unit cartons around those individual glass units. Again, 100% recycled paper, but we definitely got a little bit of pushback from certain customers on that front. And it just made the most sense for the business. And it is still in line, I feel, with the sustainability proposition that we have. But there's just certain things where you kind of, it's not worth it for your business. From the standpoint of building a sustainable business and business model, some things don't make sense. But it also sounds like you've found ways to at least mitigate that is what your your goal is like, well, okay, we've got to use this outer packaging. So let's make sure we do it and, and structure it in a way where at least the impact of it is minimal. Yeah. 
and and so it seems like that's really i hear that a lot the thing for you you've been trying to find is this is to walk that that middle ground tightrope of sure we want to be environmentally conscious we want to minimize what we do packaging wise and at the end of the day we are providing a product we want to make sure it's quality product that's in good condition that's not damaged and that we manage our logistics in the way that we need to and so we're going to keep working on managing that as best we can as i'm talking about i'm like it feels a little stressful (laughs) i don't know if that's been your experience of it or not Yes. Yeah. And and yes, at the end of the day, you're not going to be the perfect company for everybody. But I found that being transparent is what people really want. And so, for example, when we did the unit cartons, I wrote a whole blog post and I went through every reason why this was the decision that we made. And I feel like that helped a lot of people understand and just be like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) As well as even in product development, I do a lot of polls on social media to see, would you prefer a dropper or a pump? Or, you know, those kinds of questions. So if people feel like they've been involved and they can kind of see like, oh, this is the type of decision you have to make, they're a lot more understanding. I read a few of your your articles. They come across as again very very thoughtful. So that's the impression I get as someone who's really trying to be to be mindful of this. It sounds like you've found there there's an audience who it definitely does speak to as witness your being able to to make yourself profitable pretty pretty early on and to have a business that's growing and expanding, which is great. Thank you. Yeah. So as you are you know where you are this the journey with adding the refill shops and doing these things. Is there a current problem or challenge or difficulty that is gotcha, maybe a little bit stuck or, or losing a little bit of sleep at night right now? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm always questioning kind of comes back to a topic that we touched on earlier, which is marketing this in a way where it's still growing, but it's not fueling crazy consumption. And one of the big issues that I'm running up against at this point is just general reach in terms of social media. It's really started to kind of dip a bit to the point where I feel like I really am talking to my existing community, which is fun, but it's not allowing my e-commerce business to grow the way that I would like it to. So that's what I'm thinking about a lot lately is marketing that would specifically boost our website. What are some of the things that you've thought about or have you done any experiments to this point to to try and look at that? I've done some dabbling in terms of Instagram ads and Google ads, but I really haven't put together any type of a strategy and just starting to explore those things because in the past, I would say we've been around for about three years and specifically TikTok was a place where we were kind of gaining a lot of new viewers just very organically. So I I actually have not put money into ads yet. And I'm kind of debating if that's, that's the next step. What about, have you tried any sorts of offline ways of connecting with people, expanding your audience, finding new, you know, new fans and new followers. Yeah. Yeah. That has been a bit smoother in terms of being able to be in these refill shops because a lot of people are interfacing with the brand in person through the eyes of refill shop owners who in general are like very positive about our product and are kind of giving the sales pitch for us. And that, and that has garnered a lot of people, a lot of the new people that I see on our socials are messaging me, I found you at this refill shop and I have this question. So that's that's bringing in people from the regular world, but most of them have come in through a refill shop and are not going to be shopping on the website. And then from the standpoint of like using advertising as a methodology to attract people, what are your general feelings about that? I think it's made me feel like a little icky and that's why I haven't done it yet. But I'm like, do I need to just put on my big girl pants and this is the name of the game in the sense that I don't necessarily support the values of these social media companies, but I'm going to be paying them money. So it's just that kind of a conflict as well as seeing kind of a decrease in 
the success of influencer marketing, where I feel like that would have been where I wanted to go because I could have supported individuals that have similar values who are talking about sustainability. But from other fellow founders and just my own scrolling habits, I can see that that seems to to be kind of going down the drain a little bit in terms of views and, and acquisition costs. Right. So I'm hearing you, part of you is like, one part of you is like, I don't know that I feel super good about this from a more of an ethical standpoint at all. But two, there's this awareness of this isn't necessarily a vehicle that seems to be quite what it once was. Yeah. And so there's a lot, a lot of that, which at the very least is the kind of thing that will impact how you engage it if you do. But I also wonder if you aren't un- unintentionally and unnecessarily limiting your vision as far as places that you you might you know that you might be able to find new people, which which raises the question that I, that I would have you explore, which is where else are your people? What else are they doing? Where do they go? Where do they hang out? What sorts of things are interesting to them? Number one, and then number two is: is there a way that you can have a presence there in some form? Those are great things to think about. And I I really appreciate getting that kind of insight, especially one thing that I've been reading a lot about lately is the marketing on the Barbie movie and how successful that's been. And obviously, I don't have Mattel's budget, but they really went to places where you would not expect Barbie to be right on like a grill right. commercial for like an outdoor grill or things like that. And, and so those types of questions and thinking about where people are hanging out virtually and in person, that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into. What do you think when people encounter your products, what makes them decide, oh, this is something I want to buy? I think for a lot of people thus far, I've been really like tapped into the refillability aspect. I think because I'm in a refill shop, the person walking in there is already looking for something that's low waste. Initially, I thought I was targeting beauty consumers who wanted to be more sustainable. But what has actually come through through the refill shops are people who are sustainably minded already but they're interested in upping their beauty routine. So it's kind of the opposite of maybe what I designed for. And so I think I'm doing a good job targeting those people. And in many ways, I need to figure out how to target the more beauty-minded person. So that seems like something where there may be for you, you know, some, some research on really understanding for them what what compels them? What motivates them? What are they focused on? Yeah, and you know, kind of, kind of, who are they? So it sounds like there might be some market research in here for <laughs> you on on that front. But it also sounds like, I mean, are you seeing this as these are really two fundamentally different customer types, or is it that you just that they're generally the same people who just happen to have two different entry points? That is really the question I think that I need to get at, and I think there's also. A generational difference between millennial customers and Gen Z customers that I'm navigating because I think Gen Z has this kind of sustainability mindset ingrained in them in some ways, whereas for millennials, it's typically something that they discovered later on, like they were living their life and then boom, they became like zero waste, kind of like the story I described myself. I'm like right on the cusp, so I don't really know which category I fall into exactly. So there's like that aspect of it that I think is playing a role as well. I think the thing that I, that I'm hearing is the the thing I would caution is, is to watch out for getting pulled into the, like the social media stuff and the advertising stuff. Not that I'm, I mean, to be real clear, I'm not here to talk down pay-per-click advertising. I built what I, I I built a psychotherapy practice solely on pay-per-click advertising. It has its use and it can be, it can be valuable. And in fact, I wonder also if there's not a, a conflict that might exist between it and some of your customers. Yeah. Right. Cause you know, you see people who intentionally be like, no, that's a sponsor, you know, that's a sponsored link. I'm not touching it. Right. Right. Yeah, or, that, or that kind of a, or that kind of a thing. But one of the things I was, I was wondering about was with, again, your products and the appearance of them is that I don't know. And I don't know if you've experimented with this, but I'm like finding myself wondering about things like if you were at some type of a festival or an event where there were different kinds of vendors there that were of, 
a related or relevant nature that how much like, you know, people just seeing your products and you being there having the, you know, the story of who you are, why or what you are, how much that actually would be a thing that would introduce you to new, you know, to new customers, which raises a secondary question, which is, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but what is actually like the lifetime value for you of a customer? That's something I need to like actually calculate. I am, maybe that's another problem that I'll bring to you is the issue of tracking customers who first come to my website and then go to a refill shop. Because from just the website perspective, it looks like I lost that person. But in many cases from feedback that I receive, I know that they ended up finding a refill shop to refill out in person. So it is a little bit hard to track that journey. And I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is one of those things where it becomes the challenge of how do you find a way to kind of to track them but not to track them that feels creepy or feels invasive. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and how do you give that? And, and cause it, cause it is, it's about like, really, you're just trying to understand the life cycle of your customers and what they do and, and all of that. And so this is where I, I wonder if there's not something you might be able to do with, with some of the refill centers, some type of an incentivizing thing or some, some type of a thing basically to be like, if you, you know, if it's a refill and you do provide whatever information, like, you know, if you give people some kind of customer ID type thing or something where we're basically a way to be able to ID, oh, this person made a purchase here, right? To give them a reward for that. It's not foolproof, but it gives them a, an incentive to be able to provide that, that thing for you there. I think that my guess is this is an area that probably hasn't been explored a lot yet because the whole, this whole thing with refill centers is still a newish thing, but finding that balance of how do you get a sense of who your customer is and what they do, or at least enough of them in a way that's really coming from the standpoint of both understanding them and understanding them so you can better serve them and structure your business to serve them, not so you can figure out how do you sell them more stuff, which is <laughs> what everyone's you know, wor worried about. And understandably so, you know, with, with how as soon as you know, you say, do anything about anything, like Facebook's immediately like flooding you with ads for that, for something related. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. Which just feels really, you know, really, really invasive. But I, I think I'm hearing here, though, a lot of opportunities for you around getting a better understanding of your customers, who they are, and how they work and what they do, and how they engage with, you know, with your product over time that would probably give you a lot of pointers about how, you know, about where to be or what to do, but also about starts to get into the question of what's it worth to you to get a new customer, right? I mean, whether that's from an ad standpoint or not, because if it, like, if it takes you $500 in ads to get one customer, but that customer's average lifetime value is $5,000, that's a killer deal. Like yeah. a 10 to 1 ROI is, <laughs> is, is awesome. You know, but if they, if, if you get like, you know, $150 for the product, that's a really problematic deal. That's, that's a, that's a bankruptcy spiral. But even like, like thinking about things like, again, events. And I think here's, I guess, one of the things I'll, I'll say is, for you, there's like the story here. There's a story here. There's a story about what you're doing. There's a story about, about skincare products. There's a story about business. And those things have power. And those things can only be conveyed in certain ways or certain places. And I think it's virtually impossible to do that in a space like, say, Instagram. But you can do some of those things, for example, in person. And so like I get like going again, like I was talking about, go and have a booth at a festival. That's a huge investment from a time standpoint. It can be a fairly large investment from a financial standpoint. And whether or not it's worthwhile depends one, I mean, how many new customers does it get you to? What are they what are they gonna bring you? Right. So yeah. I think there's and then this is no big deal because you're a you're a chemist. There's a lot of math here. <laughs> I think yeah. that, that probably <laughs> is is in your future. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah. But does that, does that give you some ideas or some things to, to think about or play around with with this? Definitely. Yes. I think there's a lot of good questions that you asked me that I need to like go journal about. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Journaling. I mean, yeah, journaling. Every, I, I think everyone should journal more. That's one of my little, my little <laughs> things because it, it is a great vehicle for, for producing insights. So what do you think, like, what are the things you wish people knew about 
skincare, skincare products, and, and the industry that you think most people either don't know or have a misconception about? Yeah, I think one of the major ones is what you brought up in terms of just product overwhelm and the sheer number of products that are available. And this is just perpetuated even more by social media and trends that are like just, you know, the product is viral for one or two days and everybody goes and buys it. And by the next week, it's a different product. So I think there's a great opportunity to pull back. And as I mentioned, those three products that are necessary for skin health, cleanser, moisturizer, and SPF. Think about going to that baseline. And then if you want to add in maybe one other product for a specific skin concern you might have, that is a really solid place to start. I would advise against buying anything that's just the trend for the moment. Another thing that I think is fascinating is the trend cycle between skincare and makeup. So during the pandemic, I feel that skincare had this big boom because everybody was at home. There was, you know, this interest in the Korean skincare routine that's, you know, 12 steps. And that really got a lot of people to buy a lot of products that they probably don't use anymore. And now that we've kind of come out of that or people maybe reached a point of, I have enough skincare, I've seen the vast majority of marketing switch to makeup products. And now it's, you know, different lip products and blushes and face powders. And even within those, you have micro trends such as the dewy skin versus now we're going back to matte skin. And it's just once you see it, you can't unsee it, how just circular it is. And we're just repeating the same things over and over. And I feel that if we were able to view skincare as, yes, an act of self-care, as we like to call it, but really as just a hygiene ritual, you start to see it differently. Imagine if you had like 10 products for your teeth. (laughs) <laughs> that would be crazy. That's, if you're that's like, a horrifying thought. Right, like a 10-step oral care routine. Like your skin really is an organ. It's a body part and mm-hmm. it, it requires some upkeep, but the industry has done a lot to, to amp up the total number of products that we really need. And you see that as well affecting people's skin and you're seeing a rise of people claiming they have sensitive skin. And there's really no question to why that is because you're using 10 products. Because if you just put stuff all over your skin all the time that's chemicals and has things in it, at some point that's going to have an effect. Weird. Right. <laughs> right. For people who would like to learn more about you, about your products, and all of that, where is the best place for them to find out more about about you and about Rebrand? Yes, you can check out rebrandskincare.com or follow Rebrand Skincare on Instagram or TikTok. Excellent. So Aubrey, thanks so much for taking the time to, to come on the show today and for the conversation and and for the education. I'm sure a lot of the people listening are going to have learned something. I know I've learned a couple of things, so I really uh, appreciate that. And, and your mission, really just what you're doing to try and you know help things be more sustainable and to really bring a little bit of uh, maybe sanity to what at least, again, from, from my perspective, sometimes looks like kind of an insane industry. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been really fun. Hey, it's Steve. If you enjoyed the show, I have a small favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking just a few minutes to go to iTunes and leave a review for the show, it'll help more people become aware of it. It'll help me serve more people. Really appreciate it. Catch you next time.